0: Some of us find ourselves on center stage, making our living by releasing the trumpet's golden tones into the air, captivating audiences worldwide. Others among us may be more prone to engage in spirited discussions about its intricacies, its legendary players, and the unforgettable moments that have shaped its journey. But no matter our background or ability, Trumpet Dynamics is our harmonious sanctuary, a podcast that tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. A haven where we explore every facet of this wondrous instrument, delving deep into the minds and hearts of those whose energy breathes life into a simple piece of plumbing. Join us as we venture through time, tracing the trumpet's storied origins from its humble beginnings to its modern grandeur in orchestras, jazz clubs, recording studios, university halls, and beyond. Through insightful interviews and captivating anecdotes, We'll hear the wisdom and experiences of virtuosos, teachers, historians, and enthusiasts alike. And now, let the symphony of Trumpet Dynamics commence with our founder and host, James D. Newcomb.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the show. You're listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. My name is James Newcomb, and we have... Some special guests with us. I have my beautiful wife, Sana, at my side. Hello, Sana.
2: How are you doing?
1: I'm doing wonderful.
2: I'm happy to hear that.
1: Great. I am happy that our uh, listeners have pressed play on today's episode. The most precious asset that any of us have, especially in this modern world, is our time. And our guests share their time. It really means a lot. I do appreciate people who press play on this episode week after week. Sometimes we don't really get to interact with each other that much. You don't see that much of me because this is audio only. I don't see you. But when we are able to meet in person at a conference or something, be sure to say hello, introduce yourself if you like this show. All right. Our guest on today's episode is Jim Olcott. Jim is the longtime professor of trumpet at Miami University of Ohio. I believe I got that, that pronunciation correct. It is in Oxford, Ohio, but it is called Miami University, and Jim will tell us how it got to be called that. Like I said in my interview with uh, Rex Richardson last week, we relocated to Minnesota, which is where I grew up, and it's where Jim Olcott is located, and things worked out. I was able to reconnect with Jim. I played in his trumpet ensemble, In 2016, I lived here very briefly before moving on to a different locale in the United States. So it was a fun reunification or reuniting with Jim and getting to just chew the fat with him. And he agreed to share his knowledge, which as you're going to hear is very extensive. And he just has a really balanced and insightful perspective on music and how It should interact with our lives. You'll hear a lot about how our perspectives, our priorities change as we get older. Talk a lot about being inspiring versus enriching. Like when you go out on stage with that horn in your hand, what is your purpose? What are you trying to do with it? There's just so much. If I were to just try to give away the whole podcast before we actually listen to the interview then what good would that do? So I'm just going to turn it over to our conversation with Jim Olcott. If you want to know more about Jim and hear some of his recordings that he's done uh, recently, the show notes for this episode is TrumpetDynamics.com forward slash Olcott. That's spelled O-L-C-O-T-T. TrumpetDynamics.com forward slash Olcott. And when we're done with the interview, I encourage you to stick around. I'm going to play one of Jim's recent recordings. He's like this master of overdubbing. He's got this whole studio set up in his apartment. They're in Richfield, Minnesota, and he's just a master. And you'll hear him make a bit of a confession during this interview that he's not playing in top shape compared to what he may have done, say, 10, 20 years ago. But as you're going to hear at the very end, he's still pretty dang good. So if that's, if that is taking it down a rung because of getting older, and that's another thing you're going to hear the distinction between getting old and older. If that is going down, backing up a bit, then I would take that any day of the week because he sounds really good. All right. So let's go get to it with myself, Jim Olcott. And we also got to hear from my beautiful wife, Sana, about halfway through the interview. Here we go.
3: One of the smartest things I've done is move up here.
1: To the twin cities. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah. And you were in Miami, Ohio before this. Correct. It's Miami University of Ohio. That's correct. It's in Oxford. My, the reason that it's called Miami is because the Miami Indians were there. Oh, really? And that's what the, the whole area was their reservation. And, and then that the university was founded in 1809. So it's pretty, really quite old. And of course the Miamians were still there. So Miamians, so that was before Miami of Florida. <laughs> so the Miami
1: University precedes. Oh yeah. The U- So it's got a long
3: history in that way. And it's, it was, a, it was really a good place to teach. when did you start at Miami of Ohio? I started in 1979. Yes, I did 35 years. I don't want to make you feel old, but I was born in
1: '76. That's okay, and I'm not young.
3: That's o okay. that's
1: okay. After I'm going to be 80 next year. I don't want you to make I don't want to make you feel older.
3: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, older is fine. Older is physical, oh, yeah. and it happens. People who live here, every everybody has something. That's. Yeah, because you're older. Your body breaks down. The body, it's just the, part does of stuff. life. It's just yeah. part. And, yeah. you, and that's like what you accept. Yeah. People die here. Mm-hmm. I say once every two or three weeks, there's somebody who dies. Mm-hmm. And that's weird. Yeah. And, and for, then you realize one of the one of the guys here said, Gramercy, and all the places, represents the third chapter. Hmm. The first chapter is growing up. Mm-hmm. The second chapter is having family and career, doing all of that stuff. The third chapter is retirement. How do you handle retirement? What do you do in retirement? And every that's you know, up uh, different for everybody. But those, but people who are, I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate, in that I'm continuing to do what I love to do. Mm-hmm. There are those that say, if you love, what you no, know, what is it? How does it go? Don't love what you. Do what you love. And that's different. And if you do what you love, you're not working you're earning you're getting money for doing what you're goofing off with. Maybe. At least for, for me and for a lot of other what fun I've been having. Mm. In comparison to so many other folks who can't wait to get home or yeah.
1: or whatever. But but there there are times where where you take what you love and it becomes your career and then it becomes a job. It becomes a task, uh-huh. and that becomes tedious. And I agree with you. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, what happens you know. is, and I'm I'm not saying this with any sure. level of authority. Sure. This is my own experience, and my own observations. Is yeah. that people have their, their like their first love, which is music, for our purposes, and then it becomes a job, and they get burned out with it, and they end up hating it. I agree with you. Yeah. I see it in orchestras, especially in the string section string section. I talked to Tony Prisk. Mm -hmm. You've heard of him? Yes. In the Philadelphia? Yep. He was talking about how the the string sections they are the and I don't mean any disrespect to anybody but they're very unhappy Uh because they all wanted to be soloists Mm -hmm. when they were in school and now they relegated themselves to the Philadelphia
3: Orchestra. Third third stand inside. Yeah and that and you're right. Mm -hmm. If you watch carefully just for the fun of it if, when you go to an orchestra concert, and you see the people walk in, the string players especially walking in to sit down and play the concert, and they play beautifully. But when they come in, there's a countenance that is like, oh God, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. This is only going to be an hour and a half tonight. That's good. okay. Right. You know, then. But they play beautifully, but there's something that's just that's draining about that. When you see that, yeah, that
1: mentality is completely foreign to me. Uh huh. But if I think about it and I try to put myself in their
3: shoes, I understand. Oh, I, I can too. I can get it. I can too. But in your position, <clears throat> and, and uh, I'm, thank goodness in the position I'm in, the reason I always enjoyed doing Miami, there are good days and bad days. But in general, I'm doing what I love to do, play and teach and, and hopefully inspire and hang with, with other like musicians and learn stuff and play stuff and moving up here. There are 600 drum players in this town, 600. There are 17 orchestras. There are over 40 jazz bands, active jazz bands. There are over 50 bands and brass choirs Mm -hmm. and brass quintets and so forth, over 50. Crazy. And a choir on every corner. Mm. It's amazing. The wildest thing is that most of it is volunteer. Yeah, it is. So I tell people about the trumpet ensemble. You know that we're doing all this and they say how can you afford this <laughs> and I say because we're, it's, it's gratis and they find there's only I found out there's only one other town in the city in in the country that where you can get away with that and that's Los Angeles because there are so many people that are trying to connect the, the rehearsal bands and all sorts of stuff things that are going on there but here people want to play with all the colleges mm-hmm. that, that turn out electricians and bank people and uh, PR guys and 17 orchestras is 17, that like is 17 that, does that include that's, the college orchestras? No, or just volunteer? That's, that's volunteer orchestras, wow, semi pro and professional. That's great. And of those 17, only three pay Minnesota, St. Paul, and then, there's one other, says, I forget the century or something. Okay, anyway, one of those others, yes. but the others. It's usually a pay to play. There's a dues. That you yeah. really? Huh. And, and you talk to most people from almost anywhere else in the country. It's really like bizarre. We just came from Virginia Beach. Like
1: yeah. Norfolk, Virginia Beach. And there's nothing there. I mean, there's some things there. Yeah. But
3: yeah. it's nothing like here. This place is nuts. Yeah, and people don't know about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. My And I, I found out about <clears throat> it with my son. My elder son was at, at Peabody Conservatory, majoring in audio engineering and saxophone. And to finish his degree in audio engineering, he had to apprentice a studio. And that's, of course, that's in Baltimore. Yeah. So he chose Minneapolis because of that Prince and all the other stuff that he knew was going on here. And so he came over here and he hasn't left. He's still here. And he, and he lured his younger brother, who has his own rock band that, that, that is now settled here. And both of them said, dad, when you retire, you really have to move up to Minneapolis. If you get bored, it will really be your own fault. <laughs> yeah. And he was right. I, I came up here in July 1st of uh, 2013, 13, Yeah, you've been here 10 years. Wow. And in April of that year, I got a call from a friend of mine who lives here. Mm-hmm. who had heard that I was going to move on. Said, are you coming up to Minneapolis? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, hey, could you, I would, I would like to do an Easter gig. Wait a minute, an Easter gig was two weeks ago. He said, no, next year. Year. next year. I said, that's cool. He says, by the way, I am principal trumpet in the Kenwood Symphony Orchestra, and we're doing some summer pop stuff, and I can't make it. Could you cover for me? I'm not even down yet. So I had thought about maybe putting the horn down after all these years. Step into a new place and put the horn down for three months or something like that and get back into it. Well when he asked me that, it took about five seconds for me to say, sure. <laughs> we moved up here on July 10th. July 15th, I was in my first rehearsal. Then you meet Charlie and you meet Fred. And
1: go, oh, yeah, yeah. How it works. I, I remember... <clears throat> I lived here very briefly in 2016, because I had just left the military in came right, because right. I, I grew up here. So that's just where we went. And it was similar. It was, I think maybe a week, two weeks before who I, Brent Turner, I think said that I should look you up or so, something like that. And someone had just said, you should call Jim. And it was uh, two or three weeks later that yeah. I was in a
3: rehearsal yeah. and then gigging with you guys with the ensemble. It does, well, that's why it's so much fun. Yeah. It really is fun. The challenge <clears throat> is with personnel and he can't make yeah. this rehearsal and he can't do this and he can't do that. All that kind of
1: Yeah, I actually just a couple of weeks ago, we were I was still in Virginia and I contacted somebody in the brass band, the Lake Wobegon brass band. And I said I I I play and I have a cornet and I can, I'd love to play with you guys. Yeah. And he said, yeah, we could have used you yesterday because <laughs> we needed somebody. I was like,
3: I, yeah, I should have. That's, but that's how it works. When you're at the rehearsal on Tuesday, you're covering first. Yeah, weekend, this coming Tuesday. Yeah. Which is some fun. Some, sure. did, I, did I send you any recordings? I, maybe I yeah, you did. Yeah. yeah. You still do all those recordings? Yourself? Yeah. Sheesh. You still all, play, all, huh? Yeah. Wow. And, but age does have its effects. Yes, you get older. It just does. You oh, get sure. older. And whether you like it or not, age affects the bodies of people in different ways. I find myself with less endurance and the the upper range is pretty much suffered. And, but you go, well, and then you can try and practice really hard and work harder to try and maintain that. But after a while you get, wait a minute, Hmm. what am I trying to prove here? Mm -hmm.
0: Put me on second
3: book, third book or fourth book and I'll make the section sound really good without sweating it and that's really fun. It, is. it really is. So you, it's, there's an old law that says you do what you can do until you can't do it anymore. Then you accept it with serenity and recognize that when you could, you did. When you could, you did. Yep. When so you, you do, do your
1: it. absolute best until you just
3: can't do it anymore. And and you you have to decide. Yeah. He you know, says, so I'm, I'm working too hard for what? I want to enjoy playing. I don't want to worry about this or worry about that. And have so I'm instead of playing in lots of things, I'm playing only in the Kenwood Symphony, second trumpet, not first. I'm playing in two jazz bands and playing not lead. Or or second, or probably thir- second and, or third and third fourth Okay. and take some solos and stuff mm-hmm. but the, the funnest the, the the most unique thing is when I was at Man- the Manhattan School of Music I had played well enough that I was in the top orchestra and at the very first rehearsal the conductor Anton Perlea who was um, conduct- was conductor one of the conductors at the Met was our conductor and he said, I am very happy to be here because I am standing in front of people who are working very hard to make their instruments sound just exactly like, the, like like they want it to sound. That's your job. And I'm so proud to be in front of you. Now, he said, my job is to make you, and he put his hand across the whole orchestra, sound exactly like I want you to sound. You are my instrument. Let's get started. And we played Beethoven, and it was your jaw dropped. Really? Because you knew he could. He could. You could see. You were watching him like crazy, because he was conducting in a way where you could tell what he wanted. This and so this and that, controlling the dynamics and watch the speed and you could. And he just. It was what fun it was yeah. to do that now i have grown up now and i have a trumpet ensemble and i can do the same thing so the ensemble is your instrument absolutely correct
4: yeah
3: and that and there's always things that need of course but i know what i want it to sound like mm-hmm. and when it sounds that way yeah what's
1: the, what does it feel like
3: it feels great, because not only does it touch the audience. When we play something slow, a, a a a hymn, and we dedicate it to one of our one of our members who has died, and we finish, and there's five seconds before the applause begins. Whew, mm. That is, whoa! That's mm-hmm. you. You can, They tasted it. And that the group tasted it. Mm-hmm. And if they come across inspired like that, it crosses into the other things they do. So that when I ask them to do this or do that, they know what I'm talking about. They've tasted it. Hmm. It doesn't does it get better than this? Yeah.
1: When you're when you're performing something as maybe as a soloist or maybe as an individual within an ensemble, you have a, a picture of what you want to accomplish. Let's, say, let's just say you're going to perform the Artunian Concerto. Yep. We'll just throw that out. Yeah, out sure. There. And you, it's like you're going to visualize the end result. You're going to play it this way. The audience is going to react this way. Is it the same thing when you're conducting oh, a, yeah. an ensemble? There's like, a
3: great story about the Artunian. There great. is a James, I forget his, James Watson, okay. principal trumpet, in london was giving a clinic at one of the one of the conference competitions that i was I had organized for itg and james watson was the clinician and he one of the one of the students who came up to play was going to play the rtoonian for him and he played and he got through the first five or six measures and watson said stop he said let me tell you a story he said there's a guy named igor in In Moscow. And he lives in a fourth floor flat that has only one light over the kitchen table. It's dank, it's dirty, it's dark. He works in the mines. That's what he does. But he has Olga. And Olga is the love of his life and is the reason for his existence, putting up with all this other stuff. One day, he comes home, and there's a note on the kitchen table underneath that light. And it says, I am leaving you. I have never loved you. I am going to be with Sergei. Now you're ready to play the Artunian. dee da dee Trying to get a little bit of joy out of this Russian angst thing. Holy moly. If you can get into that kind of attitude and play it with that kind of something, and the audience goes, whoa. They sense something, and they don't always know what it is that they sense. But there's a... the Ronald Rom, yeah, he's a good friend. Oh, great! And he and when I retired from Miami, he was he spent a couple of days at Miami doing clinics and stuff. It was part of our celebration of my last semester, and we talked. He said, "Why do you practice? So you get better. Why do you want to get better? So that I don't make any mistakes. We make mistakes. So that people think I sound good. And so what? And they finally can they enjoy the music." Who enjoys the music? The audience. He says, what, "So what does the audience say?" He says, "I want to inspire the audience. I want to inspire. Play well enough so that the music transcends the playing of it." And Ronnie said, "And?" And he said, "Inspire is not the tip of the iceberg. Tip of the tip of the spear. It's." to enrich, so that when you hear something that really touches you, enrich, you never forget it, and you are richer because of it. I'm sure that you've had had experiences like that. You hear something, and it just, it takes your breath away. That, he said, is the top of the spear. And he's oh. right. And if what we produce and if what we can play, if what we play can touch an audience like that. When we play a a piece that was written for us by a guy in Washington, D.C., Paul Murtha, excellent, does a lot of stuff with the trumpet on side. Anyway, he wrote what we call the signature fanfare. It's a really gutsy fanfare and a good one. And when we play it, that's how we open our concerts. And you always hear, we finish, whoa, from the audience. Whoa, yeah, whoa, whoa. We touched him. We got him. Horowitz put it this way. He was asked when he was 96, or no, 90, in his 90s anyway, when he did that concert in Moscow when the wall came down. He was asked by a reporter, says, When were you at the top of your game? When were you at the top? And the reporter said, Mr. Horowitz just smiled and said, oh, I still am. (laughs) But, he said, I know when I have the audience in the palm of my hand, when I can control their breathing. Now, I didn't realize at first what that meant. I thought with breathing with a phrase, no. It meant when it takes your breath away, when you forget to breathe. Because something so has happened that's is so exalted. That you just say, oh. And when you do that, when you do you've enriched your audience and they'll never forget it. Hmm.
1: Inspire versus enrich. It, it sounds similar, but you think about it and it, it you can see that there is a difference. Yeah. Like ins- it's a big difference.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Bring my wife, Sana, into the fold. She says there's a big difference. Expound on that.
2: Are you going to cut me out? or Of course not. not? <laughs> okay. So I heard, Jim, you have you've told us a lot of profound insight about your passion playing trumpet and music. When you said that you want to play because you don't want to inspire people, but you want to enrich the people, it just touched my heart that I could resonate with my profession as a professor at university mm-hmm. I, I probably gave so many lectures that could inspire a student but after five years six years when they graduated they couldn't make use of
4: mm-hmm.
2: use of it it didn't really touch any part of their life and they never grow they never develop and they go back square one where they started at university but when I, I think what Jim means by enrich is you want to inspire, but at the same time you want to be impactful. Have touched the innermost sensitive part of a human being, all the five senses, but something above that, which is their soul and spirit. When you reach to that point, it's never ending and it never stops there. It makes the person to go on. Now. Again, I would also think who would be in the audience, successful achievers in life, those who probably failed many times and anything they touched never come to reality or materialize. But when Jim plays that music for them, wants to give the same message to both type of a human being, that you can still go on and you can be successful in life. Life is beautiful, and you, just like music, it's the language that doesn't have boundaries. Any person from different nation with different background and language can understand it in the same way. So I think that's what Jim means, That through his music, try to change the life of people for the better. Mm. That means enrichment, to give them a tool to use in their life to achieve something
3: sometimes they don't sometimes they don't realize it yes they just they don't well i hear there's a sense that change and then wow that was really something that that kind of thing i hear the two words inspire versus enrich and
1: i hear inspire i'm gonna i am the center of attention and i'm going to inspire you versus i'm going to give of myself and enrich you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a different uh you have to put yourself in a different frame of mind as There's far as there, your role, as that's a right. And the,
3: the three roles in music. Is, is until you're very mature. You are not what your your self concept is not based on who you are. It's not based on who you think you are. It's not even based on what other people think you are. It's based on what you think other people think you are. Wow. Why are you nervous when you go out and play, a solo or something? Yeah, because you're afraid of the audience. Hmm. Why are you afraid of the? O- oh, I, I'm. If I make a mistake, they're going to think that I really am a bad player. Hmm. Oh, I'm a bad player, hmm. and that that puts pressure on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first stage. Hmm. The second stage is when you're able to divorce yourself from the audience, get yourself involved in the music and just play the composer. Then there's the Itzhak Perlman stage, where you walk on stage and you go to the audience with your eyes, I've got something for you. Listen to this and play for them. Mm -hmm. How does that compare? How can you compare that? Here, listen to this. You're gonna really pull something from it.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Wow, to be in that position, to be hopefully providing that opportunity, yeah. not just to the audience, but to the musicians who are playing.
1: Mm-hmm. We were talking last episode that I published on this was with Rex Richardson. and We were talking about what makes a virtuoso
4: mm-hmm.
1: and it's not because Rex is famous for high notes and fast. He's right, a, like right. a Vizzuti type of player. Yeah. So that's his calling card, for lack of a better term. But we were talking about how a virtuoso is someone who's just, they take a virtuous approach to music. And you don't have to play at any particular level to be a virtuoso. I would agree. It's your mindset. You could be uh, in the fifth grade, but if you listen to your teacher, and do what your teacher says, and you practice every day, in my mind, that's a virtuoso. You don't play at the level of Itzhak Perlman. It has to be,
3: and you're right. It has to get inside you though. When a baby cries or when a when or when his baby is happy, you can hear it in their voice. Yeah. And why is that? Because they've been listening and they have these emotions and they peop, and it is automatic. They when you talk can you, when when you're when you talk about there take a sentence. My mother told me to go to the store, okay? My mother told me to go to the store. My mother told me to go to the store. My mother told me to go to the store. My mother told you know, so different ways of and but each one of those sentences has a different connotation. Yeah. How do you do that? It's simply tapping an emotion. It's automatic. Can you imagine playing an instrument like that? Right. To where, when Ronnie was here, Ron did spend a week here.
1: Here in Minnesota. Yeah. Well, he, oh. pl- he
3: played with, played with us. Ron
1: was like my first trumpet hero. Ever, Is that
3: right? Ever. Well, Canadian brass. he's still a great guy. Yeah. And he and his wife were here and they did the uh, Eric Eways and wrote a piece for he and his son and trumpet ensemble. We commissioned it and he came up and it was premiered and so he stayed here in this building for a week. And one of the things he had a, we have a Friday with friends kind of thing where people from the, throughout the building meet. And he did, and his wife did a Clint a, to showcase trumpet, this is what we do. And one of the questions from one of the people here was, is, How do you is it that you make something sound happy? And Ronnie said, I don't know. I just do it. And so I said, Listen. And he played a C major scale. Boom, dee. And it was happy. And so I raised my hand, Ronnie. Make that sound sad. What? His body did something different, and he didn't think about. I'm going to play that slower now. I'm going to play that a little softer now. It just happened. It just happened. Just like when you can hear me talking with you. you. Talk louder, softer, higher, lower, faster, slower. Just. And it gets the point across. So when you practice, my famous, one of my favorite teachers, Don Reinberg, he said, here's what I'm going to do for you. And we were doing a brand etude. He says, it's going to take you two days to learn the rhythms and technical stuff. And it's going to take you five days to learn how to play it. And he meant digging into it with that kind of Freedom that you can make it sound. It's like the second the second exercise, second etude in Charlier. Body and all the beautiful stuff. How do you phrase it? How do you feel about it? And if it can come across to the people who are listening to you or even just talking to yourself with it, that's why you practice. So you can control the horn enough that when you want to make it do this, your body knows how, without you having to think about it. Mm-hmm. That's the virtuoso.
1: What I meant is that the, the fifth grader who, who does that is on a virtuous path. They're not a necessarily virtuoso. Right. a virtuoso. But I, heard
3: but Maurice, it, I heard Maurice André live oh, a couple wonderful. of times. Couple yeah. of times. One of the times it was with the Columbus Symphony, and he did the Hummel an ordinarily hotshot harry he heard this yeah he went and it was incredibly elegant yes and where did that come from he didn't have to play it fast mm-hmm. he just it just it took your breath away mm. it was inspiring <laughs> more than inspiring it was enriching cuz i learned okay now Elegance. That's just maturity. A person who has been, who's 35 has been 15, but a person who is 15 has never been 35. Yeah. And that just it takes the experience. So someone like Andre, just playing with this just maturity. <sighs> I'd rather hear that any.
1: Went Marsalis was, like, he, was, he set the bar pretty high when it came to playing things fast in the 80s. And if I, were to, if I were to interview him, one of the questions I'd ask is, how would you do those things differently if you were to do it now? What do you
3: think his answer would be? What do you think his answer would be? My goodness.
1: I think his answer would be something along the lines of, it's not about how fast I can play. I think it would be similar to what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. It's how can I enrich people with the music versus how can I impress people, or in my mind, inspire people with, them, mm-hmm. with
3: how fast I can play. One of the things with Winton, who was also in Miami, by the way, he's a friend too. He has fun playing. Yes, uh, and he had fun playing before, but the mat- the maturity with which he plays now. Yes, is is just fun. It's just fun to play. Yes. And is that where we're ultimately going? We do all our teaching, all our practicing, and all our experience in the orchestras, and the jazz bands, and so forth. Now, wait a minute, I'm past all that now. Let's mm-hmm. just have fun, and hopefully the fun that I can play with, yeah. it, other people enjoy it, too. And,
1: and when you're younger, when you're 25, your priorities is, as far as why you do what you do, why you put in the reps, are completely different from when you're 45. Absolutely correct. And I would guess from, because I'm not 75. Yeah, you can yeah. speak to this, but when you're 75, it's different from when you're 45. Of course. Yeah.
3: And uh, exactly right. It's a, and it's, there are some people that can play mm-hmm. like crazy when they're 75. Sure. Then there are us mortals <laughs> <laughs> that that things do. Receive that you can't do quite the same but you can yeah. s- to play with a good tone good sound and enjoy what you're playing and Just your own particular maturity yeah. Maybe it, maybe over. it's a
1: matter of I can do this, but I don't have to do this
3: But <laughs> sometimes you can't do it anymore
1: <laughs> yeah. But when you're 25 you're like if I can't do this at 144 beats
3: a minute then I'm a failure. Well, I got then I got to practice like crazy yeah. to do it, you know, yeah. and at, at, at this age mm-hmm. practicing I, I don't practice so hard anymore. I don't. I'll, I'll play through stuff, work on the pieces of pieces or groups I'm playing in, and so forth, and do some exercise. But I'll then I'll put on some hold. yeah, yeah, and just cool. and practice playing playing licks and work, just work on things. But nothing that I've really got to improve and get that range back going again and get. No, it used to be a respectable range, and now D's. Which is still respectable. (laughs) Well, but but compared to who, what? Yeah. But,
1: uh, but the standard is still probably if you can play a D that's respectable.
3: No, and uh, maybe less than what you could. Not as often as I used to be able to do (laughs) it, but recognize it. And I do not want to be one of those guys that someone can, someone says, yeah, but you should have heard him when he could. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be the guy that they're talking about when they say that. But what if you are? I hope not. But what if you are? Is it going to kill you? No, but at the same... You no. Know, it's just, I don't want to be in that kind of position. No. Just get a shallow mouthpiece. I'll be, <laughs> and everything will be fine. But, no, I'm right at that point. I recognize the limitations that are there. But I continue to write. I continue to... Have the trumpet ensemble. I'm selling Triple o Press yeah. to a former student, and I'm oh, per- you're selling it. Yeah. Oh wow. Very happy to do that. Not because I'm gonna. I don't want to do it. I love it, but at my age, I've seen people who are my age who have published a few things, and they just let it go, and it dies on the vine, its own death. Or you can sell it to a larger company, Shermer or someone. Yeah. Then it would go into their catalog. And it would end up in the catalog, but you couldn't expand on it. Yeah. Or you can have one of the, someone who you trust take over. And a guy named Dorian Mohar is a former student, oh, great. Who's, e- who's even more of a trumpet geek than me, even more.
1: Wow, if that's possible.
3: Oh, it's possible. Wow. This guy's something else. And, and so I'm quite comfortable with his taking it over as of January 1st. 24? Yep. His name is Dorian? D-O-R-I-A-N.
1: Wow, he's even got a geeky name. Yeah,
3: M-O-H-A-R. Yeah. And he's a great guy. He loves to play. His wife is a Grammy-nominated pianist. Really? And so they travel because she's playing solos with orchestras. So he makes a point of meeting the trumpet players in the orchestras. Mm -hmm. And he's geeky enough, beautifully geeky. He says, let's go play some quartets. <laughs> he says, he says I, I believe in the community trumpet ensemble concept. I believe in the, and he really does. He's an amazing guy. And so I am absolutely delighted that he's taking it over. And, we'll, and it will continue to grow. I will be a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, the triple Press is going into Dorian mode. <laughs> Ooh. I, you see what I did there? Uh, yes, you did, and, good, huh? and, and bravo! <laughs> 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 Better than Phrygian, I would think.
1: <laughs> you don't have
3: you don't have any students
1: named Phrygian, do you? No, okay. but
3: but that's a that's that's a cold comment. Phrygian. I'm sorry. That, that was, that's bad. <laughs> anyway, but I'll continue. To to people will send me stuff from my reading group that which has always been an audition situation for pieces for triple press too audition you audition the pieces sure,
1: you people. determine what you're
3: going to publish yeah okay. sure it's a great way to do it and gives the people who trumpet players we usually has yes, but 12 to 15 players yeah. that are here and we read all sorts of stuff and some of it is really pretty good and some of it makes the good pieces sound even better
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, I you know. understand what you're saying. Yeah, and Makes uh, you uh, but
3: but that's okay. That's part of the fun of it. You play something, you go through that, right? Turn it in. <laughs>
1: Rent was due. Yeah, sure.
3: <laughs> but that's um, but and that's okay. Yeah. And I always make the point of people who send stuff in. I always write them back, thank and you. tell them yeah. that this was this. We had a lot of fun with your piece. There are some things that that these guys, the the, the folks. In the ensemble, spoke about that probably would be good for you to mess around with. You're too busy. The music is too busy. Or it's, it really, you can't do two and a half minutes with a horn on the face the whole time.
1: They don't Just, take into account the physical.
3: Some of them are young composers yeah. that are getting their feet wet. And, and my teacher told me to send this to you, which is great, which is great. We have fun with that too. But we'll get some stuff that's sent by some of the guys that I know. And uh, we talk about it, and they send it over. There's a guy named Peter Knudsvig, who's with Kenzie Brass. Knudsvig. Yeah. Oh,
1: that's a Minnesota name.
3: K N U D S V I G. Wow. And he's done a lot of writing. And I just reconnected with him after like years of non connection. Good guy. And, we started to, and he's got a whole raft of stuff for trumpet ensemble. I just, matter of fact, just, just the other day, I overdubbed uh, uh, a movement of uh, one of his for nine trumpets, just to see what it would sound like. And uh, this final, uh, no, I'll no, i after this, I'll play it. i for you. Oh, sure. Um, I can play it on the podcast too, if you want. Well, I'll I can like, send it to you then, right, sure, if you you like. Yeah, sure. Uh, stuff that I've been doing. But we got uh-huh. stuff for the trumpet ensemble. Just how did method.
1: Triple Press start? When?
3: why? Thirty-four years ago, okay. and I was teaching at Miami of Ohio, mm-hmm. no, no, wait, that was before, I was at Humboldt, wait a minute, I'm thinking way, way back, Fort Hayes State College in Kansas was my first job.
1: What's, what state? In Kansas. What, what was the name of the Fort school?
3: Hayes State College. Fort, Fort Hayes. Fort Hayes. Got yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's university now, but yeah. back then it was, I was in 1968 and I was 24. Was my first job, my first college job, and turns out that the, the experience in the bands or in the uh, organ were not good. They were not very good, and so the trumpet players were not getting a good musical experience. Not getting a good how do you play as a section experience. So we began having sectionals, and so I began writing stuff for sectionals and that just expanded off of that. It was for them. And then, then folks uh, you know, I tell somebody about it, Hey man, yeah, I'd be interested in them, send it over. So I was sending, and then after a while I said, wait a minute, what's, I don't know, I start doing something and it just started, started from there. And now we've got 227 titles Incredible. and with Dorian, it's going to, some of this new stuff,
4: yeah.
3: it's going to so, expand.
1: So it's basically you're just. Meeting a need that you had, like an immediate need. Oh yes. Okay. For sure. And that that was the founding of Mm
3: -hmm. what's now. Yeah, and then I then we had a trumpet class once a week, and began writing more stuff, and it just went went from there. Then got played a little bit at at ITG, and and so. You,
1: You mean your guys from the Fort Hayes? Yeah,
3: we played one ITG thing. It was in Colorado. Wow. But then they started using them. At in other groups around the country, began using triple press things when they played concerts and things at ITG. So they, I say, it, it's 11, not this year, but two in, in uh, two seven or so seven or eight pieces on the festival of trumpets concerts were triple press things, and then there were five or six ensembles that played triple press stuff during the week. So, that's really fun. Yeah. Triple O Press—it's the only company there is that does only trumpet ensemble stuff. Um oh, why Triple O? What, triple O, that? Oxford, Ohio, Alcott.
1: So, it was founded in Ohio. Yeah, but not, you, but you started tr- uh, trumpet ensemble stuff in Kansas. That's correct. Uh, okay, got it. That's
3: correct. And so that that uh, yes, that that is correct, because when I actually started Triple Press was nineteen ninety two, something like that. Oh, I see. Nineteen ninety, right in there, right in there. So you've been
1: there for a while. Okay.
3: And so I was writing for my trumpet class. And that just just blossomed out of there. And it's a lot of fun. It's very satisfying. I get notes from guys that, that, uh, you know, very complimentary stuff. There are four things that you have to do, they say, to ensure that your name is written in the Book of Life. The
1: Book of Life?
3: The Book of Life.
1: I thought we were serious. There were four things that you have to do.
3: You have to plant a tree, inspire at least one person, have a child, and write a book. And the people that don't have children, that's metaphor as much as anything. And when you have mm-hmm. the people who you inspire, the people who you are, who you really hang with. Right. And so that's more of a metaphor than the others. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The book thing, my music is my book.
1: My podcast is my book. Yeah,
3: I okay. would I agree. I would agree. Mm-hmm. And in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, it'll be there, it'll be there. Mm-hmm. And so once you do that, do those things, then everything's okay. Everything's okay. So when you get to be and you realize that that you've done that and there are people, I've conducted alumni bands at Miami where the people who are 70 and 80 years old and they're scared to death because they don't think that in their life they've created anything that it's a book. And I know one guy, a guitarist, an older guy who's was pretty feeble. He handed me a, an arrangement of his of Wabash Blues. And he said, says, Here, put this in the library. It needs to be in the library. He said, because all I've got for my whole life is, a, is a, a desk drawer full of airplane tickets because of his job. He says, there's nothing there. And that was early enough in my career where I and Triple Press didn't happen because of that, but as I look back, say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay.
1: Triplo Press is your book. You bet. This, yeah. And the I, ensemble is your instrument. And the, on- and the
3: ensemble is the instrument. The fact that Triplo Press stuff—that's not just tri- 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 but but stuff with my name on it—out mm-hmm. of the 227 pieces. In the Triple Press catalog, yeah. sixty-two are mine, and they are in people's libraries.
1: Yeah, they're on my hard drive. No? I did the uh, Christmas song two years. Ago. Yeah, it's a great arrangement.
3: And that, those will be there. So that's okay. That's okay. Do I have more stuff to do? Yeah, if the situation shows, yeah, I do. I know the things that I. What they are, I don't know. Well, let's see what shows up. But I'm not pressured to do that. In that way, too, hmm. I'm really lucky. Well, what
1: does it mean to plant a tree? Because that sounds metaphorical. No. Well. No? Just plant, a, plant tree. a tree. You bet.
3: Okay. Plant a tree.
1: Physical tree. Mm-hmm. All right.
3: You betcha. It's not hard to do. No. Because that will grow.
1: Yeah.
2: It could be also to create students who follow you. You
3: can. It, There's it, a, the, it can
1: be physical and metaphorical.
3: It could be, depending on how you want to read it. And in, yeah. in my mind is physical. Mm-hmm. But you're exactly right about it. it. grows and grows. There's another old line that says, when you teach your son, you not only teach your son, but his son exactly, and his son. Yep,
1: so you're teaching your grandchildren.
3: And if you inspire just one person in your whole life, you justify your existence.
1: Yeah.
3: So when I teach... I teach my students and I tell them about Don Reinberg. Don told me this, or Bill Vacchiano told me this. Here's what you do. But Don took from Vacchiano too. Vacchiano took from Schlossberg. Schlossberg took from whoever it was. There's Schlossberg in me. There's Reinberg in me. There's Vacchiano in me. And when I tell my students those stories, I'm there too, along with those others. I'm just there. But students 10, 15 years from now, when my students teach their students, Vacchiano's name won't be remembered. Schlossberg's name, my name may not be remembered. It doesn't matter. Did you study with Yeah. Wow, year and a half. Wow,
1: whole podcast. There's a there's
3: a there's a story about that. Let's hear it. Don Reinberg was a student of Vakian. All right. And when he knew I was going to be going to the Manhattan School of Music, and he said, "You'll probably be studying with Bill, and he's going to be on you about this and this and this." And so we were working on page, I think it's 178, if I remember correctly. I got some just double tonguing stuff. And Don would have me busting it on that. And he'd stand across the room and listen to me and go, Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Oh, gosh. So I finally had, go to New York. I have my first lesson with Vacchiano. And sure enough, he turns to that page. And so, oh, here we go. And I went, And he, I got through the first two measures and he stopped. And he smiled at me and he said, Don't single tongue it, double tongue it. Whoa, now that's a backhanded compliment, because I was double-tonguing it, and it sounded like a single-tongue to him, but he has students that can tongue that fast, single-tongue. He thought I could do that, not me, I don't have a tongue that, that fast at all. So I went, so I puffed myself up and said, I am double-tonguing that. Okay. Bill goes, oh. And turns to page 124. All the, the arpeggios, all that stuff. I, I think that's the page. It may have forgotten. But anyway, and it was like, sick of it, flip slip it. That was it. With the Arbenz book?
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. In the Arbenz. And he just looked at me going, and went, He didn't give me this look like,
1: okay. But there's always something. There's always. Oh, such, sure there you is. can you can say that you've mastered the trumpet, but you never, never you can You can never perfect it.
3: One day I came in and he was playing, and he looked at me and he said, Give me your mouthpiece. Yeah. Oh man. But he took a drill out of his cabinet and stuck it in the edge of the cabinet and closed the door so it's a drill sticking out. And he took my mouthpiece and drilled it out right there. So it turned, instead of a 27 or 26, whatever it was, he turned it into a 24. Now, I've been playing on it ever since. And that was in 1968.
1: But what I mean is that we were talking about how you like have the audience in the palm of your hand. Yeah. And that's how you know that you've mastered not just the physical elements of your instrument, but also... The emotional, the spiritual, where you have that, but you have to. The
3: audience has to feel. Right. it, but it, they what, can't feel it if you what, don't. That's not possible.
1: I understand that, but what I'm saying is that you can get to that point where you can
3: hold them in the palm of your hand, but there's always something that will trip you up. Yeah, always. There's there's a there's another Andre story. Okay, I saw he was here, and I forget which year it was, but he played a go- organ recital. At the U. Um, um, uh, Miami, right? Or no, here, oh, in, here Minneapolis. in Minneapolis. This, okay. is, um, this is the year that I taught at Eau Claire. I taught one year at Eau Claire. And Andre was here. Okay. And he did a, recital, did a recital. He did a concerto with organ. And the organ played a concerto of its own, or a piece. then there was another concerto, intermission. So it was four concerti. In one point, the first concerto of the second half, Andre was playing. It was Albanoni or one of the stand. And he, and a a particularly... And then, but he, there was just something that didn't, he just didn't, whether he chipped a note or whether the fingers weren't quite in sync or something. And you could, I was in the 10th row and I could see him immediately focus. Bang, it was immediate. It's as if he was playing and he was enjoying himself, and he was thinking about something else for just for a minute. Some His mind had just gone, and as soon as that one little thing happened, you could see it. The focus was immediate. Bang! And he didn't make another, another mistake at all wow. the rest of the night. But that was amazing to watch, that how his, that he, he floated just for a minute, and enough of this. That was, it, was just, it was fascinating to watch.
1: Damn sure. Do you remember the year this happened? It was
3: when I was here. It had to be 1970. Oh, okay. 1978.
1: Before, you know, it was a long time ago. It yeah.
3: before my time. 78. Something like that. 78, right? When, when I was teaching it, I'd have to remember when I was teaching it at Claire. You know, you know, I covered for Dominic Sparrow. Oh, okay. Or no, I took his place for that one year. But uh, it's things like that. So you're exactly right. It can, something can trip you up. You stop thinking for a second and uh, all of a sudden, but then as soon as you realize it, but if you get to the Itzhak Perlman stage, where it says, listen to
1: this. Okay. What's the Itzhak Perlman stage? We've said you, this twice now. Yes.
3: When you can come out to the audience and you look at the audience, you go, I've got something for you. Listen to this yeah. and then play for them sing to them and make them cry Mm -hmm. or make them listen to the nuances that him and Mioma. Yeah. The same thing. It's just the expertise is it's like talking. It's like talking. Mm -hmm. It's the automatic. You're not thinking of this. It's so natural that the humanness is in it. Wow. And every once in a while, everybody, everybody has a chance to taste that. Even if it's a, have you ever been in a situation where you play something and you get an, an electric thrill? It goes, oh man, that was cool. Mm. Be lucky enough to be able to sense that, but luckier enough to be in an orchestra or be a conductor mm. when you can take the audience's breath away. When you can, when they don't clap for those first five seconds after hearing something very soft disappear. Mm. And they begin to applaud, and the accolades come. Mm. And the cheering comes. But it took a few minutes, a few seconds for it to occur. Whew. Mm. Oh. Those are the times, those are the times that you remember. Yes, you do. Those are the times you remember. And people come up afterwards and say, they've never heard something like that before.
1: And then you try to recreate it in a different setting, and you can't do
3: it. And it's true. It's it's true.
1: A personal example on my end is E03. I played, my Aunt Diane passed away. She was fairly young. And her favorite song was How Great Thou Art. And so I played how great thou art and I wasn't a I, I was a, a decent player but not a, a good player. You mm-hmm. wouldn't I, I wasn't uh, on the docket. I wouldn't have made it in the trumpet ensemble, for example. Mm-hmm. but I, I played it and I played it not uh, great, but it was so moving for everybody in that room. Yeah. just just the way I did it it played by myself, and then the piano came in. What was
3: in your mind when you were playing it?
1: Man. Yeah, you just want to... It, it, the setting is that we're honoring someone who has
3: passed. So you were not thinking about of the not. technical side of, of things. Not. You
1: exactly. bypassed it. Exactly. Yes. exactly. And a couple of years later, I tried to do the same thing. I played How Great Thou Art at, I think it was like a summer camp or something at the campfire. And I played it better than yeah, I did. Yeah. But I just didn't get the reaction. I was expecting people to just come to the altar, come to Jesus. Understood. Give their lives. But it just was, it was like I was playing to a brick wall. I may, have, may as well have been playing to yeah, this table yeah. right here. Yeah, you're right. Yeah.
3: So what was the difference? What was the it?
1: difference is that there was a meaning behind what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was enriching people versus trying to inspire them. To go back
3: to our theme from earlier. I don't think, I don't. I think, in my mind, you weren't so enriching. You were thinking, you were just, you were, you were playing in your second stage. Second stage. The second stage is where you're not thinking of the <clears throat> audience. You're playing the music mm-hmm. itself and try, and expressing. You're expressing yourself yeah. in the music. Well, you're sharing
1: yourself and, with. Well, basically, for a, for a purpose. But
3: but you weren't thinking about. Were you thinking about the sharing, or were you thinking about your aunt, and playing for her? Exactly. Yeah. That's different. Yeah, yeah. That's right, different. So if you can do that, and that's a listen to this, I have something for you to play. And you say that to a whole audience is one thing. But if you're saying that to for instance, how would you say to her, I love you? Right. I love you. I love you. See you later, hon. Mm-hmm. I love you. I am in love with you. You're not talking to anybody else. Right. No. Right? No. And sometimes that's what people sense. When you say that to her, and people will go, damn, that's nice to hear that said like that. And so you talk to the audience. The audience understands what you're saying, and they can sense what you're saying. You're not necessarily talking to them. That's it, suck. but the second stage. Like, even that is a third stage because you're talking to somebody. Wait,
4: wait,
3: you're talking wait, wait. to somebody. Okay, what's the first stage? The first stage is when you're afraid of the audience.
1: We've been through this before, but I feel like I feel like I missed it. So can we just review it? The real first quick? stage is
3: when you're afraid of the audience. Okay. And because of your own self-image.
1: Self-image
3: is not. You're not. It's not until you're very mature. You are not. Your self-image isn't based on. Who you think, who you are. It's not based on who you are. It's based on what you think other they people think, think you are. Got it. So that if you make a mistake, you think it that they think you suck. On you. And then you mature yourself. And some people never get out of that stage. Yep. When you're able to <clears throat> get into the music and you're not thinking about the audience anymore, and that's a pretty beautiful stage. But then to have the control where you can go out on stage. Uh, Ronald Rahm and his wife always, they have a little ritual. Mm -hmm. Before they go out on stage, they go, we get to do this again. And they go out on stage with that attitude. And they play to the audience. And they play for each other. And that's why it's so good. Yeah, because it's not, of course it's, technically brilliant because it's wrong, wrong, but that's not why it's good. Exactly. Yeah. You hear (laughs) other players that are killer players, but okay, let's go get some lunch. Yeah. But you get those into that and understand. And that's why Don said, Don Reinberg says, you've got two days to learn it now. Learn how to make it sound like you want it to sound so that when you want it to sound like X, You don't have to think, now I'm going to, the arch of the tongue has to be higher because I want to get more of a brighter sound now, so do this. Your body changes when you can play exactly the same mouthpiece, exactly the same trumpet, and sound five different people, depending on what kind of piece you play. How the heck do you do that? How do you do that? It's all here. Bill Adam, very famous. I took some lessons from him and one of the things that he said that was really was really nice. He says, what's the most important thing you have to have in order to get a good sound on the trumpet? The most important thing. And most people would say air, The air is free. No, the most important thing to get a good sound on trumpet is concept. What do you want it to sound like? And your body finds a way yeah. to make it sound like heard that and I've lived that <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah we all have yeah Been lucky enough to understand it exactly and but you so what is it you' when you're practicing you're training your body to learn how to do that hopefully well enough and instinctively enough that if you want to go Buddha uh, uh, and uh, uh, dad, your body knows how to do it you get it in your head and you can but, play but, it.
1: and then you do that uh, in in And then two minutes later, you can play Mahler 5. Exactly. And you're training your body. And
3: being able to do that. And what fun that is. Oh, my God.
1: It's a nice feeling to be in that zone where you can do what you want to do.
3: And uh, I'm limited in what I'm able to do now. I'm more limited than I was before. You've always been limited. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But I'm more limited than I am. But I'm having a ball. Yeah, you're great. But I'm having a ball. And we will play some of those recordings for you. Great. And we'll, we'll go upstairs. I'll put them on the podcast. It's well, okay with you. If you, I'll play the, these for you and you, whatever you'd like to do. Sure. You, Sounds absolutely. great. Absolutely. They're all overdubs, <clears throat> all done and I'll take you upstairs. You'll see. Sounds It's good. on a single microphone in my second. All
1: right. This is James Newcomb and we've also been talking with James Olcott, although he goes by Jim Olcott. <laughs> he's the founder of Triple O Press. And as you can hear, he's loving life and here in the Twin Cities, and just had a wonderful conversation. It was great to reconnect after seven years? It's been quite a while, Jim. Almost, it was eight years that I lived here before, and now we've reconnected again, and undoubtedly we'll be seeing more of each other, but thank you for sharing such,
3: it it was really profound. I'm glad to help, glad. I'm I'm not having any fun at all, as you can tell. (laughs) And in the spirit of what we said, in the spirit of
1: what we talked about in this podcast, it was enriching. It really was. Thank you. I really mean that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And inspiring in some ways. I'm delighted. It's great to meet the two of you. Of course. Absolutely. And of course, thank you to Sana for her beautiful remarks. Very poignant. All right. That does it for the interview with Jim Olcott. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, there's a whole trove of recordings that Jim, he just sent me a whole bunch of stuff via email. So I'm going to have everything that he sent to me at the show notes, which again is trumpetdynamics.com forward slash Olcott, O-L-C-O-T-T, trumpetdynamics.com slash Olcott. I'll have all the links that he sent me and and there's just so much. the, The man is a prolific performer and composer and arranger. Kudos to Jim. Thanks for being on the show. And I'm sure that Hopefully we'll hear from him again on the podcast. There's no reason not to since we live seven miles away now. And I'm just going to close this out with a one of the recordings that Jim sent me. Let's see. This is called Telemann Allegro. That is just what the track is called. Telemann Allegro. And there's a whole lot more that you can listen to. They're really impressive and a lot of fun to listen to at TrumpetDynamics.com forward slash Olcott.